Welcome to Innovation Insight, the podcast where we explore innovation in all aspects of life. I am your host, Dr. Yolanda Sanders. Today, we have the privilege of hosting a distinguished guest, Dr. Adriana Gurria, who has a remarkable journey and contributions to the fashion design and the apparel industries have been shaping the future of wearable technologies and sustainable design. With over 18 years of experience in the apparel industry and over seven years of teaching at top universities such as Drexel University, Syracuse University, and the University of Delaware, Dr. Gurria stands as a beacon of innovation and interdisciplinary research. Dr. Gurria's transition from a foundation of mathematics and computer science to the pinnacle of fashion design is inspiring and reflective of her unique approach to integrating technology with fashion. She holds an impressive educational background, including a Bachelor's of Science in Mathematics and Computer Science, a Master's of Science in Fashion Design, an MBA with a marketing concentration, and a PhD in apparel merchandising and design. This diverse academic portfolio underpins her innovative approaches to wearable design. Dr. Gurea has delved deeply into knitting technologies, 3D body scanning, textile science, and functional wearable design in her illustrious career. Her research primarily focuses on how plant biometrics can inform responsive textiles with significant implications for performance sports and medical applications. This work showcases her commitment to sustainable practices in fashion and her prowess in blending art, science, and business in wearable technology. She is also the lead author of The Book of Pockets, a book that investigates the functional and aesthetic quality of pockets. Today, she joins us to share her insights and experiences in fashion wearables design, sustainable practices, and the exciting future of fashion technology. Please join me in welcoming the incredibly talented and visionary Dr. Adriana Goria. And I do have to say, I have had the privilege of working with her uh, while she was working on her doctoral program. Iowa State University. Innovation Insights Podcast. Thank you. Dr. Very Gurria. excited to be here. Oh, I'm thrilled to have you here. It's so good to see you. I know we saw each other about a month or so ago um, at the International Textile Apparel Association Conference. And you're always one of my favorite people to see. And we always do our little selfie together. <laughs> And that's always a highlight of the conference for me. Yes. <laughs> is connecting with you. It's really nice to see the development of everybody through years. It is. And you had a particularly successful conference, winning one of the top design awards. And I would love to have you back on the podcast, really just to talk about that design and your process, because our conversation during the conference, as you were telling me, the work that you put into that design uh, was incredible. So again, congratulations. Thank you. It's so well-deserved. Nice. Thank you. (laughs) 
<laughs> it was very well deserved. So, well, let's start with your journey and inspiration. So, can you share your journey from moving from mathematics and computer science to fashion design? Yeah, that basically my entire life, right? So, I started with mathematics. I was really good at math. My mom was a math uh, middle school teacher. I somehow, I don't know, I just picked up on that. I never had to study for math. I just got it. I paid attention. So that came very easy to me. And funny enough, in the same time with math, I also got really good at knitting as a kid. And I got obsessed into learning how knitting works. I would use pencils to knit because my mom won't give me knitting needles because I was too young. And I would just do it one go and I would undo it and do it again and undo it. So that, I guess, obsessivity about the process and what things do somehow, along with the mathematics, somehow got me into coding. <laughs> so I ended up doing a, a bachelor in uh, computer science, which was a major at uh, the Faculty of Mathematics back in Romania. And I did love coding. Uh, and I did coding in high school, too. I learned the basics of <laughs> Pascal and C++ and all that uh, when the computer was as big as a room. But just the, the tediousness of the process somehow caught. But maybe there was an attention problem <laughs> that I had. And I found my comfort zone in knitting as and coding at the same time. Funny enough, then in Romania, a revolution, the revolution came and there were no jobs. There's no computer science job. So I end up a practical, a professional skill. So I end up being a fashion designer because that's what was paying the bills. And I slightly diverted from knitting. I end up with cut and sew and parka jackets, production, sourcing, product development, things that I just picked up very easy because pattern making is basically geometry. So I found myself very good at pattern making because of that early skill in mathematics. So long term short, then I end up having a, a job in the fashion industry. And then I realized that fashion industry is basically business. Fashion is business. It's for profit. So it took me a little <laughs> further from my technical skills and knitting and coding, and I needed marketing skills. So I end up having a, a, doing an MBA in marketing, which kind of put it gently screwed me up because after that, it was very hard to create anything without thinking of how you're going to sell it, how you're going to price it, how you're going <laughs> to that financial outcome of the fashion product. But then luckily enough, I ended up back in academia and I did a, a, a PhD with uh, Dr. Sanders and I was able to go back to my, 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 my inner talents and the, my happy place as a person. And that got me back to knitting. And I was able to loop in everything I learned in the industry, working for wearable electronics company, for doing heart rate monitoring, sports brass, and traveling the world, traveling and seeing all the factories and seeing the implementation of uh, sensors into a stretch knit garment. And also the, the challenges with the new technologies, with the Santonian seamless machinery. Again, it got me back to my basics. Okay, let's see how this works. How can I teach this? How can I learn it? I became a learner all over again. So I went back to my little make a row, undo it, make a row, undo it, write it down. What did you learn? 
So this is, yeah, how I've been doing the research now for the last five, six years, <laughs> um, trying to really understand back to the first stitch uh, that gets into a product. How does it become what it becomes? And what are the implications when it comes to production? And try to really stay away from that financial outcome and the marketability, because I, I believe that's where now we end up in a sustainable problem in fashion industry is always chasing the money and the profit and the bottom line at all expenses, all other costs, basically. So I don't know. Did I answer the question? <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, you did. You did. And it's interesting to me how, as a child, you started with mathematics and knitting. And then also, you, as you mentioned, geometry and that importance in pattern making. And many people do not see that relationship between mathematics and fashion design how integrated those two are. And especially now with the advent of the digital technologies and the 3D knitting, you really need that ability to go from 2D to 3D, back and forth. And that's, if you don't have that, I'm trying to figure out how can I teach that to my students. Uh, that's basically the next challenge in my career, to, to try to teach the way I learn. Ah, that makes sense. Okay, so talking about mathematics and the integration with fashion design. Yes, the ability to, to translate information from 2D. And it's really interesting. I had a student that just did a project for ITA, a knitting project, and his whole concept was about two and a half dimensions. He, and he, as an art student, he saw that the fashion product, <clears throat> it's something that works with a 2D medium and creates a 3D product. So we are basically in between <laughs> two and a half dimension uh, type of field. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. And your students are so lucky to have you um, with your background from industry to the technology to science to be able to code, coding. I have some basic coding knowledge. Yeah. It just helps. And I'm sure with yours, you probably integrate that into things that you need to do. And so how do you see fashion curriculum and fashion education changing and evolving from your experiences? Because you've taught at some of the top universities. Yeah, that's interesting because, again, comes down from my process of creating something, right? Creating a, a skirt, creating a dress. You find yourself doing the same thing all the time and you get really good at it. And then it's boring. It's only that many ways you can make a skirt, right? So you try looking for something else. And then let's say you're looking at the furniture and then it's, oh my God, what if I make a skirt like this? So I found that it helps to look outside your domain for innovation, for starting that creative, ignite that creative process. So that's where I see now the education taking a leap where we start mixing the majors. I have that in my one of my classes that I'm developing and I'm, I'm teaching the uh, wearable product design where it's open to all majors. Um, the last three years, I had students from biomedical engineering coming to make products because they're really good with the science of how the 
uh, humans move and breathe and what needs they have in terms of medical assistance, but they don't know anything about fabric. Last week, I draped a big tent of fabric on an inflatable <laughs> chair <laughs> for an assistive device. And it was really fun to teach draping to somebody who had no idea what that is. And I was like, oh my God, we do so much in fashion. So one of a sudden you feel relevant again, right? Uh, and you open the, the window for a whole new innovative process in a separate cohort. Um, so yeah, biomedical engineering, mechanical engineering students, fine art students who, again, they come with that very tactile um, approach to their medium. So once they touch fabric and they see the machinery, they have a totally different approach of putting an appar a garment together, something that is on the body. But yeah, I think that the ability of the academic institutions to allow students to have more freedom choosing their uh, courses and also have the ability to take hands-on courses as in studio. I really believe, and again, from my very <laughs> a narrow experience, that um, creativity is enhanced when you work with your hands, when you bend over, when you engage your entire human being from, you know, medical standpoint, clinical standpoint, emotional, physical, your room in which you, you create matters, the people you interact with. I found myself often reaching out to my colleagues. I refuse to just close myself in a room and make something. I don't think the outcome is the same. And it might just be a personality thing. Absolutely. There are people who just, you know, uh, are creating something genial just by themselves. It, there's definitely a, a psychological content there. But yeah, in the context of the classroom, see where the classroom is, even the timing. I mean, if you think about, we're talking about fast fashion because we force the products to be done in a certain time period. So how much you can create, how much newness can you bring out within four weeks time lead or six? We somehow do that in the academia. We give students four weeks for a project, six weeks of a project. So we're pushing everything into that output led measurable, a totally measurable outcome. And I, I think that hurts the creative process when it comes to really true talent that often needs more time. That's a common complaint from my students. I wish I had more time. <laughs> so unfortunately, the reply is the industry doesn't give you more time, doesn't give you more money. Yeah, doesn't give you more resources. So you have to be creative with what you have. And that can be, again, another, I know there's professionals who think exactly the opposite, that the less resources you have, the more creative you are. I do tend to think that's probably just, a, it becomes very incestuous relationship with your materials and your, it's like, it's only that much you can do. And it all looks the same at the end, um, which we see now <laughs> in the area of knitting technologies. The products look very much one like another because... There is not much looking outside that field and the technology itself. The technologies are so complicated to learn and people spend so much time doing that, only that. And then there is nothing from outside. There is no going out and in, out and in. So then it just becomes repetitive, I think. Did I answer your question? Yeah, I had a, yes, yes, that, that was fabulous. That, and that makes sense. I, I do want to also zone in on 
your mention of the interdisciplinary classroom and having students from so many different majors, how does that impact the culture of your studio space that the students are working in? I bet it's fabulous. Um, I try to create a relaxed environment. Stress is number one killers uh, for everybody. I again, there are people who act who actually deliver only under stress, right? I need a deadline to deliver something, otherwise I can take my entire life to create. Or yes, I I could drag it, right? So, um, so there's definitely uh, there's a there is the advice of following my deadlines in my syllabus, okay? So for people who really need a scheduled, structured life and they thrive in that, I have a very structured syllabus and class agenda where you should have this done by this time, you should have this done. However, for anybody else who has greater pursuit than that particular class <laughs> or there are life events or as COVID taught us, there can be health issues. I do not want my class to add any uh, stress on my students. So all my projects are also to be delivered by the end of the semester. So they can take more time, redo it. I am not focused on, you know, you need to have, you can redo the, prod, the, the garment as many times as you want following the rubric until you're satisfied. So there's not only, okay, that's it. You hand it one time and uh, that's the grade you get. It is more work for me, absolutely, but I guess that's my job <laughs> to, to work for that and uh, prioritize the, the, the student's um, well-being. I think well-being is something that has somehow got lost in the industry and um, AI is going to tax us for us <laughs> um, because technology doesn't get tired, the humans get tired. So we, we need to take a breather and there are other ways we can do things better then just do the same thing over and over and finish it in time. Yeah, so we have music in class. So when we have uh, stu students know what to do, like I have, I present a project, a, guy, a direction, and then everybody follows their own process. And yeah, we usually, we have music. Yesterday we had smooth jazz. <laughs> Most of the students are anyway on their headphones trying to follow, but I am their guide. So I help as I can with as much as I have. So I use everything. My, my entire lab is a collection of market samples and things that I, they can be useful in demonstrating techniques. And then I always tell my students, this is the way it has been done. So there is no right way or wrong way. Uh, it's your own way, but you need to make an argument. So I always go uh, emphasize where is the concept? Where are we going with this? Why are you doing this way? Convince me. So we, we become lawyers in class or market people. Sell this to me. Why? Yeah. What is the story behind this? Tell me a nice story why you did. And then it can become something amazing. Yeah. Uh, something. Uh, uh, and I believe that somehow maybe a, a sustainable take into the fashion product. We got so used in the industry of having perfect seams. Everything has to be aligned on grain. Everything. And what is not gets discarded. So there's a lot of time and process lost because things are not exactly to a certain standard. So uh, maybe we as consumers, if we think of how many people worked on that product, how much time it took, how many resources, is it really that bad? 
you, you can't really wear that or does it really, can you see the beauty behind? So if we start treating things that come out of the human's hand, just as the humans, you know, perfect the products that come out of hand, but they do have, they do have a trace of how many people work. So that should be cherished. That should mean something, right? Mm -hmm. Anyway, so as, a, as designers, it's, it's important, I think, to cherish the touch a person does, whatever that is. We, I'm looking at my children, and again, being a mother <laughs> helps me to be an educator. But it's funny how my, ever since kindergarten, I have boxes and boxes of everything my kids create in class. They play with chalk. Oh, look at this. She made it in kindergarten. Oh, this. So we cherish those. Somehow by the time we are adults, everything we, 80% we make is trash. It's not good enough. So that's why we have so much trash, maybe. So maybe re-evaluating re the way we create things and maybe re-cataloging and maybe they, comes, they become different markets for the products, not just, okay, pass and fail, outlet. <laughs> so, so I think in the future, maybe it will be interesting to see if we already have that trend happening with reviving the used clothing, right? So they're already yeah. damaged. I see our students are looking for that. Oh, this has been worn. Maybe even the idea is like, who has worn this, right? It's, oh, Madonna's bra is there. <laughs> and it's celebrities, they, they somehow imprint in their garments and that gives them more value. But why? We are all Madonna. We are all, you know, unique in our way. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So there's a person that gives value to the garment by wearing it. But then I also think that all the other hundred people who touched and made that garment, yes. they get lost in the transi transition. So... There's a way to, to quantify and value add that in the story of a product that could be really interesting. I think it will add more meaning to our lives. It will, it, that would be a whole new social platform that our garments can serve. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Really honoring all of the hands that have touched the garment. Yeah, fashion yeah. industry has all these sad stories of tragedies yes. happening while everybody's trying to make a garment, a cheap garment. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's time to mm -hmm. turn the microphone down. I agree. Yeah. Good. To lift everybody, I guess. Mm -hmm. We're putting in the fashion, we're putting people on the stage who wear expensive clothing, right? Who basically had mm -hmm. no input in their garment. <laughs> right. They right. just wear it and then we celebrate it. And so uh, maybe it's time to turn the other way around. Yeah, I'm celebrate that everyone else that made the garment. Yeah. Oh, well, as um, as we change a little topic a little bit, I want to talk about your research. And I remember sitting at uh, a luncheon during the International Textile and Apparel Association meeting with you, and you were you had a aha light bulb moment during the conference and so we started discussing plant biomechanics plant biomechanics and textile structures which became a real foundation for your dissertation research and so could you talk a little bit about the intersection of those two and your dissertation research absolutely yes yeah, so again going back to my <laughs> Uh, I spent a lot of time in my grandmother's garden. I would just spend time with flowers and around flowers. And I always look at petals. And it was something that just stayed with me. I was always a nature gal. And somehow, yes, developing my, my research questions for my dissertation, 
I started looking, I, I, I think I was staring. I had flowers in vases all the time around my house. And, you know, the mechanism of a flower getting wilted and it gets soft and droopy and then you water it and it gets back on. And it can do that several times with no batteries, right? Just water. Somehow it, that, and then the fact that I was working in the athletic industry and doing sports bras and seeing the struggle of managing moisture in active wear and how we wick away the moisture. And it just somehow things looked dumb to me. And I was like, why are we wicking away moisture? Why are we trying to let the water get through our fabric? Why don't we use that moisture to do something such as get up, get down, get up, get down, like the flowers do? So that the mechanics, the, the plant biomechanics, that became something that I started researching and learning and reading all these journals from a whole new domain. And then, yeah, somehow I say, okay, I'm going to make that. Let's put that in a bra, a sports bra, because you always go back to everything to back to something also more familiar and dabble with something familiar. So I knew something about sports bras and seamless knitting. And I was like, okay, how can I make a fabric that could do that? So then looking at the magnified images of plants, and I have one here. Okay. So if you're looking at the magnified image of a leaf or a plant stem, that's the aha moment. Oh my God, it looks like lace. It looks like knitted fabric. I can totally knit that. <laughs> so I think I, you're, the only, you're the only person I know that would look at that and say, oh, I can totally knit that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you could. Yes, absolutely, <laughs> yes. So, um, yeah, so I went to a knitting technician working on the Santoni. Uh, machine and I was like how can I make this islands in a fabric that will absorb the water and they're gonna shrink so they create that biomechanism biomechanics where the fabric gets more compressive on the body so that was the start and now I say four years later <laughs> I have my third fourth iteration on that bra so I have a system here so this is, was, was my dissertation where I created a sports bra with this inlaid areas of wool. So that was something also fairly new when I started this, that wool is a natural smart material, right? It's our hair. We curl it. It goes back to whatever genetic information it has. I started adding this sustainable material into otherwise nylon, polyester, spandex, active wear and see how can we create different ways of managing moisture when it gets into the fabric. So everything now came down as you start researching from macro size, you have to go really deep to be able to engineer the shape via little tiny stitches and fibers. So I went through several different yarn combinations and then even the tiny little tech bubbles, so to speak. Now, I'm not sure if you can see them. Um, and the layout. Um, yeah, so again, it's slow because uh, in, this type of innovation is not fast. Yes, I can make a bra to have it up for my dissertation. I believe you, Dr. Sanders, you asked me at some point, do you want to finish this or do you want to just... I think I was asking questions and it would just put me on another route and she was like, do you want to eventually get your PhD? <laughs> Yeah, so eventually I did get my first prototype out and I tested it and 
yes, it was encouraging and I found significant differences between how my bra reacts on the body and gives a compression versus the standard bras. Uh, but then, yes, I took my time the last four years to go back and engineer. So that threw me now into a, another research field in the textile science. So now I'm really looking at um, yeah, fiber and even knitting stitches technologies. But what's even more than that is our products are all dyed. So this is where the big sustainability, another sustainability issue in the fashion industry is that we love color. We buy product by color. Color is the number one criteria to, to pick something. And unfortunately, if we dye the fibers and the yarns, then it's just more uh, costly and becomes more wasteful. So going back to, again, just dealing with undyed, grayish goods, virgin fibers, yarns, and testing them at that stage. Um, and maybe eventually we'll add some natural coloration. So I have a student now here that uh, is now we having a little project working to see how natural dyes will do on such a product, which theoretically so far we, we know it's a no-no because eventually they fade. The color fastness is not good. Um, but so what? <laughs> so let's find a way. Uh, do we need a perfect color all the time for 100 washes? Because we know we love our denim when it's washed out. So again, as I tell my students too, we need to change our aesthetic standards and our aesthetic expectations for a more sustainable fashion. Maybe it's not perfect seams. Maybe it's not perfect yarn thickness. Maybe it's not a perfect shape. Maybe it's not perfect color. It's just your garment and then you wear it and then you give it value and then it becomes yours and it's, it's a different story. So we need to change the story on fashion. Oh, well, and you're right. The story can change. And it needs to change. Yes. I mean, it's ridiculous. We have all these neon colors. And I, again, I remember being in the industry and agonizing over a hundred lab dips that we can't get the exact shade for a sports bra. And then you're looking at the consumer level. It's like, do they really know? I mean, do you really care? But we will have in the industry, you know, 500 bras going to outlet or other things because the shade was wrong. Uh, kind of pathetic. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. Very so, true. I remember so, those yeah. days. Yeah. Um, so, so again, when it comes to, to, you know, the fashion education and our students, definitely um, people come to college, they get a fashion education and they expect to get a job and work in the industry. So, and then the industry expects our students to have certain skills, right? So I'm not sure exactly where the innovation goal goes into this pro process because the industry's goal is to have workers that will take the product from A to B and create a marketable thing, right? So um, when I talk to my students, they have visions, they have personal ambitions, like me as a researcher too. Now, I can't sell that probably. I, I can't sell a white bra, <laughs> a grayish goods. The consumer is not at that mindset, but in research, I have the luxury to say, hey, we, we're not researching for a, co for a commercial product. We, we're going to Mars, right? It's, it's maybe mm -hmm. a couple of generations ahead, hopefully. Um, mm -hmm. But so, so this gap between where my research is and what wants to be and then what I'm supposed to teach, it gets bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. It does. Yeah, so it so does. eventually, yes, our students, they need to know what the machine does. They need to be able mm -hmm. to make 
development packages, right? On product development, mm-hmm. they need to know what the fabrics are. So, uh, mm-hmm. so it's a little worrying too, because also a lot of that technical work, it's now can be done by AI. So those are Correct. jobs that are not going to be there much longer. Mm-hmm. However, our students, they need to know all that technical knowledge to be able to create. And on top of that, you want them to go and dabble in other fields too, to be creative. Right. Um, right. Right. So, so I do see an acceleration of our brain. We need to get so much more information in so much faster. Um, so, so, you know, we're looking at our children. It's like, oh, don't spend so much time on your phone. Play with wooden box blocks. And I was like, no, I don't think so. I think our kids will need to be able to process all that data. Like, yeah, you're learning. Now, where are you taking the information? That's a whole different story. But I, mm-hmm. I think, I believe what the science said, we, 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 we uh, use only 10% of our brains. Maybe right. now this technology era is actually speaking, and maybe we'll end up <laughs> increasing the use of our brain by just being able to process. But you need to go look. We need to be able, you can't just be on Facebook or you need to get learning experiences when you do your social emergent, right? <laughs> social media trips yeah so i love this with the tiktok videos everybody's posting oh how i do this uh, when it comes to mm-hmm. you know skills that help you in the industry or oh, or the yeah. engineers or post okay i did this i did this device those okay. are really inspirational <laughs> moments yeah, they are there's a lot of info like you said information out there on social media that then leads you i mean that's how i've navigated creating this podcast was, oh, there's this platform I can use to do such and such a thing. There's this platform. And it's been someone demonstrating on TikTok. I know. Yeah. And Uh, there's so much out there. Yes. So how are you going to pick what you use? Yes. It's the same with with the fashion product. I do believe that a fashion designer has one of the most complicated jobs in the world because if you think of it as an artist, artists in other fields, let's say a painter, the canvas is pretty much the same, has been the same for generations. Mm-hmm. Even the paint, you have different pigments, but your palette, mm-hmm. it's the same, right? But you're looking at a fashion designer, how many fibers and materials, they constantly changing. You, we have new things every single day coming on our palette. Absolutely. And then our canvas is a human person. And <laughs> yeah, you start laughing before me. <laughs> The, the our audience the the our it's just it's it's global and now you have different ways of wearing it and styling it and what's yeah what was okay t- ten years ago you can't do it that way and it's just like and now yeah it's basically it's a, a moving target in fashion yeah, and then is, you have the technologies. A painter will just have the brush and you have your hand and the canvas or the sculpture, right? So it comes down to your hand and your medium and materials. In, as a fashion designer, you have always a technology between your material and your hand. You have the sewing machine or you have the screen or you have the knitting machine. There is something else that is involved. And those are also evolving and you have to learn. You do. Yeah. You have to learn always, yeah. always. And then always. if you, this is just in design, but then if you take even further at retail, you have to sell your product. Now you have all these other platforms. So yeah, it's it's a, it's amazing that anybody makes it. <laughs> it, 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 it. 
Uh, oh. <laughs> oh, well, in talking about designers and tech, you have a very unique lab, your wearables lab, and I follow you on Instagram. And so I see the incredible work that your students are doing in the knitwear. And, and what I love about it, and some people don't think this should happen, is that you, you have the students working and learning knitting by hand, but then also on the computer or computerized knitting machines. So talk a little bit about your, why you do that. So funny enough, it's because it's faster. So technologies, and as you obviously know, the knitting technologies are very specific. So our hands can do much faster, many things. And the knitting machines, you will have so many different accessories and so many things to learn to do something that I can do in five minutes by hand. So the whole hand knitting thing started during COVID when we didn't have access to the labs. So we had a knitting class. I had to teach my students knitting. So I created those videos of hand knitting. And yes, I got them through the basics of knitting and they created fabric and then you can make a product. Machine, the machine, the knitting machine is just slightly different, but the mechanics of the fabric are the same, more or less, right? Um, so eventually we came out of COVID. We, we got that, you know, in between. So my students started learning on the machines, but also I required them to have things we couldn't do on the machine because we had only flatbed machines at that time to do their ribbing by hand. So they learn both. Interestingly enough, I've seen, because we have industry uh, guests, and uh, yes, there are some industry players that they have knitting studios for the development, and they say they like their interns and new employees to have, to know hand knitting for the same, ex and obviously the ability to work with chunkier and heavier yarns, which in fashion mm -hmm. is awesome. So yes, you have added benefits from still knowing how to hand knit. The bulky machines will take you still only to that much uh, thickness in yarns. And, but as fashion, creative fashion people, especially now as we're looking into sustainability and recycling, my students, they're interested in making their own yarns by cutting strips. You can't put those on the machine. They're not uniform, right? Um, the outcome is so, it gives them so much joy, connect. It's a story. It's that sustainable story I'm looking forward. So I find myself going further and further in my teaching from my research, which uses super fine yarns and high technology, because again, there is that gap between what we buy as a fashion product that is just, it's, it just serves a function. And particularly in my case, it's next to skin garments, which obviously have different, even aesthetic considerations. They're more functional. And the visual, creative, aesthetic garments that serve as a communication platform for us as human beings, right? So those tend to be chunkier, more textured. And our technology doesn't help with that. So that goes back to our hand knitting and, yeah, using our hands and, yeah, being able to engineer every little stitch. So we're talking about smart fibers that they adapt, they change. So our knitting machines, yes, you have only that many settings you can change. Still, you can't have every needle doing its own thing, <laughs> right? But with the hands, we can change our mind with every stitch. And I can turn around or I can make it, I can change the yarn. There is that flexibility in, again, working with the hand. So I do love 
when my students nowadays, now we're teaching only on machine eating and I made the hand eating optional because we don't have time in the class. <laughs> but do you find that the student is able to understand hand knitting, able to do more on the machine? Uh, yes, yes, yes. Usually students who come to class and they already have some knowledge of hand knitting, they pick up machine eating faster. Because, I, again, the need and the pearl. It's really hard to explain somebody what is the difference. <laughs> um, so even on the machine, yeah, it's, it's just the same thing. The machine does need and pearl, but on the hand, you actually see it and you can do it. You have to do it in a different way. So it goes down to that very basic step of the need and pearl. That if it's not understood via hand knitting, it's a little bit harder being picked up with just machine knitting. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but, but yeah. yeah, and again, it comes down to digitally, we can acquire information faster, but in the class setting, in the studio setting, it's only that much we can teach a student a whole new technique and a whole new way of making garments out of yarn via knitting. Mm -hmm. And then there's so many different machines. So far, I just stuck with flatbed machines and we didn't bring even the reverse in because there's much to do just with flat bed. You don't need a reber. You can do other mm -hmm. things. Uh, but now mm -hmm. I have students who finish their class and they ask for an advanced class meeting. So they want to know more, which is great. You, you pull them in. And then once they're interested and they can manage the technicality of the product and even making the graphs and understanding the graphs become coding, then they get into coding, then they get become in, interested into the digital machines and the higher technologies, which eventually become that. Still, I didn't hear anybody so far in my couple of four, four years now of teaching eating be interested in working with the big machines in the industry. There's still a wall. The, the, mm -hmm. the, the stall, the schema, the, they're all, you're designing mm -hmm. behind the screen. It's all digital, and that's a huge barrier for my students. And yes, it's you, you don't get to touch the needles, to touch the yarn, to see the drop stitches, to fix it back, to see what your material. You, you, you the technology mm -hmm. put that wall between the creator and the material. Mm -hmm. At least mm -hmm. the, the flatbed machines, you're closer. You still have the machine, but you're still closer. So yeah, <laughs> the industry needs knitting technicians. They yes, do. They do. Uh, and they're they usually do. they're usually engineers. They're usually uh, uh, they're, they're usually people who come from um, engineering or technical background, and they are willing on to to put the work of managing settings and cams and beds and racks mm -hmm. and all that <laughs> and tensions. Mm -hmm. I keep thinking about mm -hmm. that, but I feel designers. We we teach. Formula One drivers. Nobody wants to be the um, guy who changes the tires <laughs> for Formula mm, One. Mm, but we need both. Mm, we need both. We do. Yes. We do. They need to work together. Yes. As you know, as a needer, you need to service your machine. You're a technician. You are out on my knees picking up drop stitches and figure it out. And the carriage gets stuck and the yarns. And that gets, yeah, worse with the bigger machines. So, um, yeah, that, that's a barrier. But, and, and that comes, go back to even the sewing machines. I mean, the serger, the serger is like <laughs> the culmination of frustration probably in all the labs. 
I mean, can I just reinvent that? I think somebody in class said it's like, can somebody, you know, pick up on that project in the industry and make the ability of just sewing two stretch fabrics together <laughs> fast? I know. Yeah. I know. It's interesting because that technology has not changed and it's so complicated. No. And, you know, you have to, if you're in a factory, you have yeah. to have dedicated engineers and mechanics yes. just to deal with those machines that break. And, and that is great in the factory because they will have a machine set up for one fabric and then for maybe a few weeks, we'll just run that fabric. But in our studios, yeah. we have a student who needs five inches of a seam with a new fabric and four different spools of thread. Then comes another student who needs a whole different fabric with new threads. So the machines keep getting changed. And that's a lot of time spent, which is not really creative. <laughs> it's, I say, tire changing. Yes, there, there are many, I, again, it's like that conundrum of, is technology really helping us in this process? Or is it a lot of time wasted on changing threads. Yeah. Yeah. Can be. <laughs> yeah. And is it good time? If it is, maybe I don't say it. Maybe if that time is good. Maybe the frustration. That's something I think I read in one of your required books in classes. Oh. Uh, it was something good. And I feel really bad. I don't remember the engin engineering of creativity or something. I forgot. I, I will send it that. <laughs> Uh, okay. One of the many books, <laughs> yeah. yes, in creativity. That That's one of the many books you, you had to read for that class. I didn't even know before I took your class that there are books written on creativity. Yes, that was a fun. But there, it was this idea that people who are creative, they need to have those early experiences of frustration and, and failure, basically, yeah. to build that yeah. grit. It takes a lot of grit to just push yes. through the, the stages yes. of... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> of bringing. Yeah. But that might have been Mihai Chitsu Yeah. Mihai's yes. Book. Yeah. That's why uh, I, flow. Yes. why I don't remember yes. the name because <laughs> I think it was yes. Bulgarian gentleman yes. with a really long name. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He, he has some different examples of uh, creative people in different fields. And he found that the early upbringing stories, they all had some grief in their life. But that built that the, the ability to push through in creative process to to not yes. get turned off just because you have to change four threads in the sewing machine or, or you dropped five yeah. stitches over and over. Yes. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I was reading an article. I think it was a Harvard Business Review. You know, thinking about your business background, too. And the topic of the article was that grit and that resilience, resilience and after you fail and in as you said creative people have to be able to fail my dad used to say you get knocked down you get back up and yeah and we have that in every i mean my son's plays basketball and sports is yeah. everywhere um and that's one of the hardest thing to teach right on instagram um, and the work that you're doing you seem to develop a environment where your students feel safe to be able to experiment to fail i hope so yes said, <laughs> yeah and you said that they can redo their projects over and over and that creates that space where you can experiment yeah and and that's again it's something that i i keep saying i would rather see a product of a, a garment that it's not perfectly finished but i see that you you followed your vision and you really 
investigated different ways. I want to see different tries. So a little bit of my research training gets into teaching my students that don't settle for the first thing that you have in your mind as a solution. So how do I finish the seam? It's like, well, just surge it. Well, what else can it be there? Because if we all just yeah. surge the seams, then it's nothing really new. Why would you make something? So balancing that, uh, especially in the more introductory classes, balancing teaching the basic skills, which actually take repetitive action. Yes, you have to do the same thing over and over to do it well, and you need to accomplish that too. But then you get to a point where, yes, I know how to do that, but I'm really bored and that's not really new and everybody can do it. Now I need to forget that and do it in a different way. <laughs> and all that within a span of 10 weeks of classes. <laughs> get somebody to expert and then ask them to forget it and do it in a mm -hmm. different way. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I give them a safe space, in, but also ask them to, I want to see that you know how to do that. And then I want you to justify why you do it in a different way. Yeah, so I, I hope the students feel safe and we have honest discussions and open yes, <laughs> minds about approaches. And you travel and so you can talk about how being part of a multicultural family, a leader in a family and traveling has impacted your work as a designer. Um, sure. So I'm Romanian. And my husband is Indian and we have three children. They were born in the United States. So uh, they, others, <laughs> they check the other box. And yeah, being, being multicultural teaches you tolerance and opens up your, your toolbox of inspiration. And it humbles you because, yes, we all in, you know, a bubble, right? We, in the, our life, we learn in a different way. We go into school. We have different, our small little circles. And then when you interact with people from our cultures, you realize your circle is so much smaller. Other people have never left their village. And, um, and somehow they are more uh, resourceful that way. You, you, you see amazing uh, creativity in people who deal with much less resources. So it, it makes you step back because... I feel like we were wasting a lot of our time, right? <laughs> um, and then we're also creating a lot of products that maybe may not be needed. We talk about, you know, first world <laughs> worries and needs. And people mm -hmm. from, yeah, India and the villages, they wouldn't, really, you need that? <laughs> it's like we, we, we create a new product for every inconvenience, right? Basically. So or do we need that? Is that sustainable? And we encourage that, right? I mean, that's what the Shark Tank is. Let's make another cupcake or, you know. <laughs> um, so so it, it makes you wonder. It makes you double check yourself and step back and slow down. So that's really important. And I, I make a, a point of having my children too travel to, to see the world. Uh, and I think one, that's maybe one of the biggest takeaways. You, you come back with a, with a bitter taste because you see humanity. Humanity is big and ugly and there's so many conflicts all over the world and you have to be aware so it saddens you you know you come back in your happy place and okay go to school and everything is good and you feel like life is good but overall it makes you wonder is this something i can do for the rest of the world what is my meaning what is your purpose um so yeah not to be sad but the other day i was like i was reading another thing another 
I, I read books about cosmos. So I'm a, and genes, right? And uh, aliens. And so it makes you, you know, wonder, you're so tiny. And what exactly are we doing? Are we little mice? Yeah, my husband laughs at me. He's like, really? Are you going to talk about cosmos now? Because I'm hungry and I need dinner, you know? <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, balancing, balancing family life and, and culture and then trying to figure out what our meaning is. It's tough. But I, th- I think it should be pursued. I think, yes, I think we have to step back. And, and this also came up from my, my conversations with some of my students in, in biomedical engineering. The way they frame their projects are always, you, you find somebody who needs it. Who are you going to help with this product, right? Mm-hmm. And then you come back and you're looking at the fashion. And it's like, wait, are we helping? Because everything is about, I want it. I need this because... I want to feel whatever accepted socially is I really, and it's, it's like, I just put their medical needs and their assistive needs and adaptability needs. And then the fashion product becomes so superficial. So it makes you question, who are you and what are you doing? Is it a greater mm-hmm. good? And then you're doing all that with all that waste and impact. So it's very saddening. <laughs> It's very saddening, but I think it's an exercise that should be done. So I encourage, I tell my students, especially my seniors, you really want to travel. You want to travel. You want to open up your perspectives and reevaluate. And it, it's, it can be life-changing. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. yeah, but I think it's important. It comes down to the stories, right? The story you want to tell, yeah. the story you want to be. And then right. how you loop in more people into your story. That's true. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So that's how I, and I bring my children to my classes all the time. So my daughter loves to be in my class when she doesn't have school. So she comes to college. Uh, but yeah, she's my inspiration. She's a 10 year old and they are digital natives. Everything is digital. Like we have breakfast and there'll be the seal box on the table and she puts her finger on the seal box and she tries to do this to the picture. So, yeah. Uh, so I'm thinking, okay, I can see that as being wrong, but also I'm thinking, oh, maybe the steel boxes should do that. Then maybe they should. <laughs> because why is she looking? Because she finished reading and her mind is looking for something else. Yeah. She's looking for the next for the, for, source of for the next, Yeah. So definitely. <laughs> oh, well, this has just been wonderful. How can people follow your work and engage with uh, your research, your wearable labs? Um, well, first, come to your D. <laughs> Join our fashion and design program. But yeah, I do post on Instagram with fashion, fashion underscore wearables. The things that we do in the class uh, with students and my research. But then, of course, you can Google me and see my papers, uh, my website, adrianagoria.com. Yeah. So as I said, I'm in sabbatical coming up in spring. So I plan to catch up and do a better way, a better work disseminating my work on, on internet. Besides that, yeah. Email me, agoria.udl.edu, LinkedIn. Yeah. It's just, it's been interesting. I, I'm trying to, again, cure. we talk about, you know, the well-being, right? So um, you, you, it really stresses me out when you go 
because everybody's bragging, right? You, everybody's putting their work. So then when you go, it's, whoa, you feel like, again, you're not doing enough, right? So it's a little depressing. So you need that break. It's like, I'm not going to look at what otherwise everybody else is doing because I need to focus on what I'm doing. Um, so, so you want to be and look once in a while on social media, but you want to be careful <laughs> because it can be depressing. You open that door, right? And it's the world out there. Um, well, I think that's a good aspect. And uh, many of our guests have talked about focusing on what you're working on and not really worrying what everyone else is doing, which I think is a great message. Yes. And, uh, you know, you have that, you know, the creators, narcissism, you want to be known. But uh, one of the greatest things, so, you know, eventually my research, if it impacts somebody's life, impacts somebody, I, it's okay. I don't need to be known, right? <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, so hopefully all this, you know, uh, adaptable compression garments made of natural fibers, just like the plants, <laughs> will be widespread. And then I'll be happy that I had a little role to play in it. Oh, yes. Well, a big role, a big role. Yes. One question that we asked all of our guests is how do you define innovation? With English as my second language? <laughs> um, it's tough. I mean, I, I think I, I, I told you that the uh, first time we spoke about this podcast. I, I think that innovation is something that can be labeled as innovation if it changes people's life and it takes time. It's usually later on, right? So like the zipper was an innovation or, um, I don't know, the slicing bread or slicing of the bread was an innovation. So when it comes to fashion is new, we create new products for that ultimate goal to sell it to somebody so somebody else can make money of it. So how do you, yeah, is it changing really life? How do you measure the impact of what you do if at the end of it is just a commercial product? I mean, the slicing of the bread was commercial too. But it aided people into their lives in a different way. So if we're looking at the fashion product, the sense of it is maybe communication and social engagement. Um, then I don't know. Maybe if we replace social media with garments, I don't know. It, I, I'm, I doubt sometimes how if our product in fashion is innovative or is just new product maybe it's just again maybe it's just a psychological blockage because i come from upbringing in which fashion was not fashion right so i grew up in communism we just had clothing right fashion was for the richest fashion was stupid yeah. fashion was obscene and expensive and superficial right so, um, so the meaning, I, I'm still a little disconnected, right? We, we have clothing that we need that keep us warm and they give us some self-expression in different areas of our life. We have medical clothing. We have performance for sports clothing. So there comes my functional apparel <laughs> area where I'm comfortable. But when it comes to fashion as creative art, wearable art, um, is that just a display of our generation, a display of the times we live? 
right? So is it innovative? I was talking to somebody from Costume Collection um, a few weeks ago, and I was like, you have all these garments from back in 1800, right? And you knew how these people lived, right? We don't, th if we have now a collection from 2023, back 100 years from now, what is it going to look like? Can you mm -hmm. tell from a collection of garments from today's that this was the year 2023? Mm -hmm. So the only thing I can think of that can be maybe reflective of the era we are today is those advanced knitting technologies is maybe the put your picture or your cat picture on your socks, right? The knitted socks with the customized. Um, any other innovation is invisible. Yes, we have amazing fibers. We have recycled nylon polyester. Those are the inside of the garments. So there is... I think a lot of innovation today in the fashion product is probably invisible. Okay. It comes down, yeah. just like in medicine, you have this cholesterol medicine. It makes us live longer, but it's invisible, right? So it's, it's just something that goes in. So maybe, maybe that's why I have this disconnection between what we do is it really innovation. As, again, translating <laughs> the innovation through my cultural upbringing. And so... I would say it's just fashion. There is uh -huh. fashion and then there is innovation. And then, then fashion. and then there is innovation and then there may be things in between the blend. But I, I would say innovation is something that maybe has a greater impact into people's life. So I, I would say probably functional apparel is innovation. Mm -hmm. And that includes, mm -hmm. yes, as I said, next to skin garments, uh, Garments that have all these sensors and will tell us ahead of time if our sugar is low, if our mood is too <laughs> depressing today <laughs> and go outside, take a walk or start jumping. So eventually our membrane clothing that goes under our garments, those are really, they're going to be, we're not quite there yet. We're still trying to integrate the electronic part and right. the, into the garments. So, um, so I, I think once that sweet spot is achieved, once the batteries are getting smaller, yes, uh, I think it's going to be an explosion of innovation into the undergarments and that then we can tackle the aesthetic of it and the fashion. So it's going to be interesting if those are going to go through the outer layer of the garment, which becomes our flamboyance, our, yes, our, yeah. our social attire versus the membrane underneath, which is our health and performance garments and well-being. Interesting. Oh did I answer yeah, your question? <laughs> yes, you did. Yes, you did. And so much more to think about. I'm definitely going to, I have to have you back at some point to talk some more. You're so inspiring and it just reminds me of how truly brilliant you are. Oh, and thank so, you. I think... Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Guria. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure to delve into the intricacies <laughs> of fashion technology, sustainable design, and your groundbreaking journey in the world of apparel and wearable technologies. To our listeners, I trust that this conversation has opened up new avenues of thought and inspired you to push the boundaries of innovation in your respective fields. May Dr. Guria's journey and insights encourage you to blend creativity with technology 
incident. <laughs> okay, let's start that again. So may Dr. Gria's journey and insights encourage you to blend creativity with technology and sustainability and whatever you pursue. Remember, innovation transcends mere technological advances. It's about harnessing your unique skills and perspectives to foster meaningful progress and transformation. I am Dr. Yolanda Sanders, and I'm signing off till our next episode. Keep innovating, keep dreaming, and keep making a difference.